Hello and welcome to Radio SGN. I am one of your humble hosts, A.V. Eichenbaum, pronouns they, them. And with me, as per usual, is Lindsay Anderson. Lindsay, how are you? Pride Month. I'm doing good. Yeah, it is Pride Month. It's exciting. The corporations have dusted off their old rainbow banners and hung them up once again. Except for Target, but we mentioned that last week. <laughs> I want to give a quick shout out to the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, the Abbey of St. Joan, longtime friends and supporters of the SGN, and their sisters down in L.A. are having a lot of problems. I don't know if you've been keeping up with this, but down in L.A., the Dodgers have for a long time had the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence in their Pride celebration. And this year they were barred, and then they wheeled it back, and they're like, okay, actually, we want you there. And there are still baseball players on the team that are upset about it, not because they're queer. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, we've talked a little bit about it on the show before, but they are drag performers who dress up as nuns. And there's some really great stuff online, like old vintage videos of people inquiring about them. And there are these crazy clown nuns that do stuff for charity, right? But this player, Clayton Kershaw, on the Dodgers is upset, not because they're queer, but because they make fun of religion and he doesn't like that, which is talk about punching down. I mean, who but the church has been more put upon in these tumultuous times. God, I knew that was coming. I knew you were going to say it was because of making fun of religion. Oh, my gosh. Well, you've got a religious based story that we're going to get to later, but I want to talk to you about how are you celebrating Pride this year? What's going on? Well, I am getting Patricia ready for her third contest in the Seattle Doggy Drag Queen competition. And aside from that, I'm hoping to just vibe. Gonna do a lot of working at Pride in the Park and covering a lot of Seattle's Pride events for the SGN. And hopefully I won't have to spend too much of the month sober. So fingers crossed. Yeah, I'm actually trying not to drink as much as possible. I read longtime listeners may know this. I have impulse control problems because of my bipolar disorder. And it's crazy because as queer people, we are encouraged to go out and party and drink. And I think a lot of that is like societal trauma like we haven't fully healed from years and years of just being oppressed as queer folks and we're still trying to get around that but it's really tough when all of your friends for a long time are alcoholics and i come from a family of people who struggle with addiction in various ways and yeah i'm really trying not to drink as much this pride because i go hard when i actually do drink and it's not healthy for me at all not to bring the mood down, but like I feel like this is a problem that a lot of people my age, like I'm pushing 30 and almost, but a lot of my millennial peers, because apparently to them, I'm Gen Z. So sucks to suck. You've been wrong this whole time. A lot of my millennial friends are like, yeah, I can't do that anymore. Or like I've been drinking so hard for so long that I'm questioning everything about my life and my friend group. And that's a bummer because these are great people, good people that just don't have a place to go after work except for the bar. You know, Seattle doesn't have a lot of stuff to do if you're poor except for bars late at night. Yeah, that's very true. I feel like it's definitely a struggle to find good hangout places. I have found there's some cool um, like late night boba spots in the U District. Oh, for sure. Boba Up, which is one of our sponsors coming up. Not this week, but in a few weeks. Shout out Boba Up. 
Yeah, check them out. Also, Oasis is really cool. They do like boba, kind of like milkshake style boba. That's the problem with the queer community, though, is, yeah, if it's not alcohol, the only other thing that you can get late at night in Seattle is, like, dairy products, and you know we're all lactose intolerant. You know, there are not enough milk-free milkshake places. There was, like, one in Alki Beach, and now they close at 3 p.m. because of staffing issues, and... What's your drink of choice? My drink of choice? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, what do you drink? Oh, of any beverage at all? Specifically, we're talking about pride, so let's talk alcohol. Let's talk booze. Let's see. I like a green tea shot. Pretty basic. Vodka lemonade. Really, honestly, just kind of what's cheap because I'm poor. I also enjoy nacho burrachos because they have like frozen margaritas on tap. Yeah, the only thing that I like to consume is like anything that tastes like candy or like dessert. So it's just a slushy, basically, uh, nacho burrachos. This may not surprise you. I'm the exact opposite. That doesn't surprise me at all. I like bourbon. I have in an evening consumed an entire bottle of bullet bourbon on my own. Or larceny is my favorite. Is that a drink? That sounds like a crime. It is a crime. No, larceny is a small batch bourbon company. (laughs) Larceny is my favorite. Larceny is a small batch bourbon company that I really enjoy. They're very smooth and they're on the less expensive side for bourbons. I also really like absinthe. Oh my God. I brought absinthe to the Christmas party last year, and I think I'm the only one that, like, some people drank it and they were like, whoa. And I was like, yeah, it's good, right? I made my favorite cocktail, which is called a death in the afternoon. Of course, what's your favorite cocktail? It's two parts absinthe, three parts champagne. I like to get it in a chilled rocks glass, but it's also served in a champagne flute. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Plus the whiskey. Then I try, I mean, we ran out of champagne, so I tried it with Pinot Noir. Absinthe with Pinot Noir, pretty good. Call it an Eichenbaum, I don't know. My last name does not make for a good drink name. It sounds like you're like choking on something. I have to ask about Pinot Noir. You've actually had it? Oh, yeah. I love Pinot Noir. I actually worked at a wine bar for a time. Oh, that's so cool. And I grew up in wine country. So where I grew up is the salad bowl, right? And then it's right next to Silicon Valley. But there are also a lot of vineyards. And then like Napa's south of there. But there's still like vineyards in Gilroy. My dad actually, he's a lawyer, but on the weekends... To make a little extra money because he runs his own firm and not everything goes well all the time. But he pours at Satori Winery, which is a local winery in Gilroy. Very friendly people. That's so cool. I was going to ask if you'd heard the Pinot Noir song from Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. I love that song. Yeah, that would be my ringtone if I cared enough. I actually just kind of living with my mom, who's a big wine fan, a big she's a wine mom to the extreme. (laughs) I love that aesthetic. While still being kind of cool about it, Moss Bosch, who was one of our first guests, has a lot to talk about on wine mom culture. And I highly recommend you go back and listen to that interview. I I hope to have them on the show again sometime. But wine mom aesthetic is wild to grow up with because of the disconnect between this might be alcoholism, but look how fun and fancy free I am, especially living close-ish to the beach, close-ish to the forest. There's a lot of like beach mom, surf mom, you know, like... I'm a hiker and I love wine. No, whoever created Wine Mom Aesthetic was a marketing genius. Genuinely, yeah. Because now people just decorate their home with like little plaques with like corks on it that are just like, I need wine before I can wake up in the morning. And everybody's like, that's so trendy. That's so cute. But it's like, no, that's an alcoholic problem. Yeah. Some other time, you know, we can go over wines and wine recommendations. We talked a little bit about what you like before that Christmas party. <laughs> and I tried to abide by like good stuff that is in that wheelhouse as well. The wine you brought was too fancy for me, honestly. 
I can only consume barefoot wine or anything cheaper. If it's more expensive than that, it just tastes like ass to me. That's <laughs> wild. Barefoot wine. I love barefoot. Stutter home. You're going to be a great wine dog mom someday. <laughs> With that, we should head to the ads. And then after that, we got a great interview. We're going to talk a little bit about Spokane. Yay. All that and more after the break. Hi, this is Dr. V. Hill with V. Hill Family Medicine. Ever wish your doctor knew you by name, understood where you were coming from, and listened to your unique health concerns and worries? I have built just such a practice where the focus is on you and the care delivered is in line with your values and ideals. Learn more about affirming primary care at V. Hill Family Medicine. Visit VIGILMD.com or call 253-693-0071. Pride Place is now leasing. Located in the heart of Capitol Hill, Pride Place is specifically designed to be an affirming environment for LGBTQIA seniors. The building features 118 brand new apartments at below market rents for income qualified applicants. Just two blocks away from the Capitol Hill Light Rail Station, Pride Place will also be home to an LGBTQIA senior community center run by Gen Pride. Learn more at prideplaceseattle.org. That's prideplaceseattle.org. Pride Place is an equal housing opportunity that screens applicants in accordance with City of Seattle regulations. Celebrate Pride Weekend at Rhinehouse. They've assembled a dream team of queens to slay you into an absolute frenzy. Featuring legendary queens Willow Pill, Ada Vox, Madison Rose, Nikki Dahl, Cynthia Kiss, Juice Box, and more. Between three shows over two days, plus their favorite DJs and late night fun after the sun, there's a party for everyone. All ages are welcome. General admission and VIP ticket packages available at rhinehouseseattle.com pride. Help Madrona Grace Presbyterian Church celebrate Seattle Pride on Friday, June 16th from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. at 832 32nd Avenue for their Pride 2023 Wine and Cheese event. Madrona Grace is a community that believes unequivocally in the radical inclusion of all people, so they invite you to join them for a fun evening filled with good eats, good people, good wine, and door prizes. Double the fun by bringing a friend or two. They look forward to seeing you on June 16th. For more information about Madrona Grace Presbyterian Church, visit their website at www.madronagrace.org. Announcing an exciting season of timeless favorites, mysteries, romance, and revolutionary ideas at the Fifth Avenue Theater. Shows include The Little Mermaid, Cambodian Rock Band, Irving Berlin's White Christmas, Something's Afoot, and Spring Awakening, plus exciting add-ons like 1776 and Clue. Subscriptions are on sale now, and through June 7th, get five shows for the price of four. Visit www.fifthavenue.org to purchase. Joining me today via Zoom, they're a storyteller, a writer, and they are the host of the Square One podcast by History Link, which talks all about Pioneer Square's queer history. Please 
Welcome, Rosette Royale. Rosette, how are you today? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. It's a beautiful day here in Seattle. You know, the sun shines and makes your heart shine. So tell us a little bit about the premise of your show. Sure. So I'm the host of a podcast that looks at Pioneer Square's LGBTQ plus history. History Link has walking tours. So they have this great program where they allow someone to tell the story of an area, a neighborhood by giving a walking tour, by introducing places of historical importance that people might want to know and sort of putting them on a map so that someone who may be unfamiliar with, say, history, the LGBTQ plus history of Pioneer Square can follow the map and learn about that area and its historical relevance to our lives today. That's fascinating. I learned after living in Seattle for a number of years that Pioneer Square was the original neighborhood, And now we're looking at Capitol Hill is moving. It's sort of, it's a queer diaspora. There's going all over the city. Why is that? I read something in Cairo 7 like a long time ago that basically they lauded the queer history of Pioneer Square, but they also said it was nearly invisible. What's going on there? Well, I haven't read that article, but... You know, I think that happens to many people's histories is that they can be significant at the time. They can be significant to the people who know them, but places get erased. Gentrification happens. People don't want to hear certain stories so that it's easy to ignore them. People who have the stories pass on. And people who have the stories may not think the story is significant. They may just think, oh, it's just part of my life. And so they don't necessarily pass it on thinking, oh, this is really important for other people, younger people to know. So I think all those things kind of play into the disappearing act of history. Do you have a favorite aspect of Pioneer Square's LGBTQ plus history that you like to talk about? Well, there's so much that happened there. I think one thing that I really love, one story, one place I really love is Shelley's Leg. So Shelley's Leg was the first disco in the city. And I guess I'll talk a little bit about my understanding of it first, and then I'll tell a little bit about the history of Shelley's Leg. So I worked at Real Change Newspaper. It was newspapers sold by low-income, unhoused. The office was originally in Belltown, and then it moved to Pioneer Square. And our office was on South Main Street. So I worked there in this office on South Main Street for years, but I never knew that at the end of the block was where Shelley's Leg was, which is the first disco in the city, right? So it was amazing to me that here I am, this queer person working in what was really the first queer area of Seattle next to the first queer bar or disco. And I didn't even know that. So that's what I mean. I was a block away from this place for years and didn't know that Shelley's leg was right down the road from where I worked. That's astounding. How did you feel when you found out? A little bit of me felt cheated because I wish I would have known sooner. But then another part of me felt ecstatic because suddenly I was close to this touchstone of LGBTQ plus history, right? So Shelley's Leg is a disco, and it was named, it was unapologetically gay. It was really pretty brilliant. They had a sign above the bar that said, Shelley's Leg is a gay bar. 
provided for Seattle's gay community and their guests, right? So imagine that being in a disco in 1975. So that's amazing. All right. So Shelley's story just seems like it was written by people who were hired for an HBO program, really. In 1970, there was a Bastille Day parade in Pioneer Square. Bastille Day is usually the day to celebrate France's national holiday. So there was this parade downtown and people decided, oh, we're going to have a little march through Pioneer Square. And they asked someone to bring a truck as part of the parade. And the person who had the truck decided to bring this confetti cannon. So an actual cannon that like shot confetti out of it. And the people who organized the parade didn't know that this cannon was going to be there. So the cannon is there. It's a warm day in Seattle. People are partying. They're excited. They're following this parade. There's the cannon. And there's this person who recently moved to Seattle named Shelley Bowman, this woman who's also at this parade. So through a series of events that's still a little unclear, the cannon with the confetti wound up being ignited and this wad of confetti, it didn't like shoot out as confetti, but it turned into like a big wad of paper, shot out of the cannon, hit Shelly in a leg, knocked her to the street, and she was in grave condition. She was rushed to the hospital and she had to have her leg amputated. So Shelly was in the hospital for a long time. She had to use a wheelchair for the rest of her life. But Shelly sued the city because she said the police weren't really monitoring the parade and she sued the organizers. And she wound up getting a pretty hefty sum, somewhere around $330,000. So Shelly had known these gay men who were living in this house. She had actually stayed in the house with them for a while and they wanted to open a disco in Seattle. And so Shelly helped them with money. And so the disco was named in Shelly's honor. It was called Shelly's Leg. And the little line was that Shelly's Leg is located at the foot of South Main Street. That's fascinating. There are a lot of stories about Pioneer Square's sort of interesting queer history all, all on your show. What day does your show air? When does it come out every week? Actually, it's not a recurring podcast like this one. It is sort of a limited series podcast, let's say. So you can go to History Link and at the top of the History Link homepage, they have a tab for tours. You hit tours and you can scroll down and see the tour for Seattle's LGBTQ plus history. And there you can find a link to the his to the Square One podcast. Well, this is tangential, but do you know why we were celebrating Bastille Day? <laughs> oh, sure, sure, sure. The people who wanted to have this parade had a French bistro. It was called the Brasserie Pissebourg. And so they were like, ooh, it's a French bistro. Let's have a Bastille Day Parade. And the bistro happened to be in Pioneer Square. Ah, uh, okay. Good to know. Well, let's talk a little bit about you and, and your work and what you do. I am a writer storyteller here in the city. And as I mentioned earlier, I worked at Real Change Newspaper. And so I've lived in Seattle for about 20 years and working at Real Change really gave me an opportunity to learn about the city because I had to write about the city that I wasn't born in and that I didn't know. So I just became really, well, it was a necessity of the job to know like, oh, who's this person? What's that neighborhood? Where is it? Why do these people live there? 
I just became curious about those things. So I wound up trying to learn a lot about those things. So I'm a storyteller and I like to tell stories about things. And I'm always telling my friends, hey, did you know that this place was such and such? So I worked at Real Change for about a decade. And then I started doing some freelance work. One thing that happened was that when I worked at Real Change, I met a vendor whose name was Bryant Carlin who was selling the paper. Bryant is also a nature photographer, and he would go on weeks-long, sometimes months-long solo journeys into the Olympic rainforest. And I interviewed him for the paper. He invited me to go, and I was like, no way. I don't know a damn thing about the wilderness and about backcountry camping, and I'm not doing it. But Bryant was persistent. And basically, over the course of five years, he must have asked me 30 times. And finally, on the 30th time, I said, okay, let's go. So I went to the Olympic rainforest with Bryant five times for week-long trips out into the wilderness, the backcountry, like seven, eight, nine, ten miles from the trailhead. And then I, and I was scared out of my wits, let me just say. Woo, I was terrified out there. And then I went on a solo journey. So I am working on a book about my experience as a black queer person out in the wilderness, not knowing anything with a straight white unhoused man. But also after I left Real Change, I was doing a number of things and I wound up working, getting a job as the story gathering consultant for the AIDS Memorial Pathway. And so the AIDS Memorial Pathway uses art and stories to tell the impact of HIV AIDS in Western Washington. So my job was to identify people who might have stories to tell and to sit down and to record them. So these were people living with HIV. These were people whose family members may have passed. These were pastors and political figures and uh, nurses and healthcare providers and nonprofit staff workers. I mean, I just tried to get a range of voices to tell this story. And so the AIDS Memorial Pathway is on Capitol Hill, right above the light rail station actual physical place where you can go see artwork. And then you can go to the amp.org. The AIDS Memorial Pathway is also called the AMP. So T-H-E-A-M-P.org. And they have a stories tab and you can hear some of the dozens of stories that I help record and or edit for the AMP. And through the AMP, I actually met George Bacon. George Bacon was fantastic in helping me start this project. He just knew so many people and knew so many names and knew so many things that I had several lunches with George and he was really an instrumental part in the early days of the AMP. Yeah, I have heard a lot about George. He's my predecessor. I put together his memorial, but I never actually met him. I know why I do what I do right here at the SGN and why we try to preserve our history. Why do you do what you do? in terms of queer history. Why is it important to share these stories? I grew up in Maryland, and I'll say that I am almost 56 years old. So I grew up, I was born in 1967. I grew up and was growing in the 70s, and people didn't talk about queerness. It was always something that was hinted at, or it was a joke, and a nasty, mean joke. And people were ridiculed. It was horrible. So I sort of grew up in this Black community where being queer was like the worst thing in the world to be. But I knew inside of myself that the thing that people were talking about, were disparaging, were making jokes about, that they were talking about me. So I was a pretty precocious kid and I read a lot. And so my mother let me read whatever I wanted to read. 
And I want to say that my mother was very supportive to me. She's still alive and she's fabulous. And so I would go to the library and just find books. I would go to bookstores and find books and read all these things. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, who are these people? So I read a lot about queer folks and queer stories when I was young. Then there was the early days of the HIV AIDS pandemic, right? And so I wound up reading a lot of these stories, these news articles and thinking, huh. And I would have to correct, imagine being a teenager, correcting adults about misinformation they were saying about HIV AIDS. I became the person who was always talking, who always had something to say and always knew something. And I don't mean that in like, oh, he's so smart, but it's like, oh, this kid's going to tell you something right here and you may not want to hear it. So then I, you know, came out when I was 20. This was in 1987 when, and I went to college in Maine. So I was a black queer kid in this small white liberal arts college in Maine. I mean, it was just ridiculous, really. But going to that place really gave me the power to understand what it is to tell stories, to share your truth, to talk about what's happening and to learn things and to pass that information on. Really, I I do this because I am not a great tennis player. I wish I were. I am not a financial whiz. I am not a medical doctor. But one thing I can do is talk to people and communicate and tell stories. And I love to tell stories about people who are often overlooked, maligned and marginalized. And I also love to tell stories about LGBTQ plus folks because that's me. All the things those people have done in history make me who I am. And so I want to pass that information on to others so that they can see that, yeah, we're just connected to this great big thread of history. And it's not like the history is over. We're still weaving the thread today. Well, that is a beautiful note to end our interview on. Rosette, thank you so much for being on the show today. Where can we find you online? You can find me online. I've got a website, rosetteroyale.com. That's R-O-S-E-T-E-R-O-Y-A-L-E.com. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute joy. All right, Lindsay, you wrote a piece. It's our top story this week. It's about a Spokane pastor, and it's frankly terrifying. What's going on on the east side of the state? Just real quick to shout out the fans that do love when I find stories on TikTok. I did first discover this story on TikTok. Shout out Lindsay Hive. Yes, shout out to the Lindsay Hive. But yeah, that was because this video went viral earlier this month of a pastor named Jason Grabber, who works with Sure Foundation Baptist Church in Spokane. And in this video, they, they like to post a lot of their sermons online. And so it picked up a lot of traction because he was saying that parents of transgender children should be shot in the back of the head and strung up by a bridge to make an example of them, which is terrifying. It evokes horrible imagery from, I don't know, past traumas of lynching and violence against all kinds of marginalized communities that unfortunately did occur in Spokane, Washington. And so a lot of people on the internet were condemning him. People in Spokane's community were condemning him. There was like a pan-religious group of people from all kinds of different religions that wrote an official statement telling him that he should apologize and repent. Concerned citizens even reached out to the Spokane Police Department, who has 
done really nothing with the case. They looked into it a little bit, but said that his speech is protected by the Constitution and not classified as hate speech because he doesn't specifically name any individuals. That's not what hate speech is, gang. Yes. A lot of Spokane reporters kind of took the story further. Some of them reached out to professors at my university, which was in Spokane, Gonzaga, and asked them to clarify what hate speech is. And they kind of just were like, this is hate speech. But Spokane police aren't going to do anything about it. They don't think that Grabber is a threat. And the church has since removed him from his position. They clarified on their website that removing him was not because of the controversy. And it was something that was already planned and just happened to coincide with his video blowing up online. But yeah, this is not the first time that he has made threats about the LGBTQ community. In other videos they've posted online, he has threatened and encouraged the killing of gay people. He has spoken out against feminist movements, saying that women should be kept in the home. He's very anti-abortion. And this church has three different locations, one in Spokane, one in Vancouver, and one in Hawaii. And the pastor in the Vancouver location also went viral last year for speaking out after the Club Q shooting and saying that he hates gay people and that basically he thinks that they deserve to die in that shooting. Let's parse this, because we do talk about religion. Often on the show, you were raised Catholic. I was raised whatever I was raised. There were a lot of different types of religions in my family growing up. And I don't have the same religious trauma that a lot of our listeners do and a lot of our readers do, right? Because I've always approached religion with curiosity. I mean, I studied it, right? I studied philosophy of religion, politics, and law and ethics in college. So I've thought a lot about gods and religion. There is a power to the spoken word, especially with an authority figure like a pastor or a preacher, that I'm not always certain that they understand that they wield it. Or if they do, and they wield it for these horrendous means, that's, I would argue, sinful by their own doctrine, right? Am I wrong here? Well, and that's kind of when I mentioned this, like, pan-religious group issued a statement. A lot of people in the religious community, including these people and people that are Christian, have said that, yes, this goes against exactly what Christians should believe, what the Bible says, if you've, you know, studied Jesus, kind of his whole vibe. And yet there is still a subsect of people that not only are hateful with their religion and using their religion as like an excuse to be hateful, but they own it. And that is this church. They have made several statements about their speech they have considered being hate speech and that they don't care. I read a book a long time ago called They Like Jesus But Not the Church. And it was by a pastor who was going around the country asking young people who at the time were millennials what they thought about religion and organized religion. And one of the things that kept coming up was that, yeah, Jesus' teachings seem pretty solid, kind of like in the same way the Buddha's teachings seemed pretty solid. But I don't like the organization behind it because of X, Y, Z. And hate speech is one of the big ones. Mm-hmm. There is a real problem with organized religion in the United States, I think. I think American Christianity, supply-side Jesus and all that, is a real issue, especially as we're going into an election year with these hyper-conservative pockets Basically, you know, saying, oh, well, God sanctioned. Remember in 2016 when people were like up to 2020 when people were like God sanctions Donald Trump? Oh, my God. There was a Christian movie about Donald Trump. Do you, have you heard of this? They make all these weird low budget Christian movies. And there was one mm-hmm. where these people were praying that Trump would win. And oh, my God, I need to look it up. 
it's crazy. And it just shows that there are insane people there. Trump is like not Christian. You know, he had right. spoken before and said, like, I think he's an atheist. And yet they're like, God wanted Trump. I feel like we've talked about this before, but I truly do believe that we worship personifications of our own ideals over any sort of ideology or religion. Yeah. The movie, by the way, is called The Trump Prophecy. The Trump Prophecy? Yes. It was like some guy had a dream that God told him Trump would be the president. But this is exactly what I'm talking about, right? Personality predates ideology, right? So before you were a fascist, you were a bully. You were an asshole and you sucked. You were just like you wanted to put other people down and you found something that happened, right? Yeah. You as in the general fascist population. Oh, not me personally? No, I don't think you're a fascist. Thank you. Yeah. So when we're looking at people who are praying to Christ that someone super hateful takes over and cleanses the country, we're not seeing the effects of like religion on the same level, right? We're seeing the effects of like deep societal issues projected onto religion and then reinforced in sort of an echo chamber of righteous fury or quote unquote righteous fury. Yeah. Well, and I think the problem is religion itself, I think, is a fear response. The response to things that we can't control, can't understand. Before, you know, we had scientific discoveries, religion was used to explain why life on Earth exists, why it rains, you know. And it's this thing that people will rely on so heavily because if you stop and think about how much you don't know, even think about like death, it terrifies. It's, it's horrible to people. And so they kind of grab onto this thing to protect themselves from the fear that they have about the world and what they don't know. And they go with it. And a thing that people fear a lot of times with the unknown are things like the queer community. You know, we're not yeah. mainstream and they have used religion to explain it to themselves. And in their explanation, the queer community is evil and horrible. And they fall back on those stories because they would rather go with that kind of faith fairy tale that has been created and told to them that educate themselves really and try to actually understand things about the world. I'm not certain I 100% agree with you mm. on the basis of religion. I do agree that we do latch on to religion when we're afraid often or when we're uncertain. A lot of people do. We as in human beings, right? But I also think that it is inherently part of human nature to want to A, belong, and B, to be inquisitive about our world, right? I believe I've probably talked about this before, but I like to think that there are two lenses one can look at the world through, right? There's curiosity and there's fear. If you're open and curious and you know you don't know things, you're not going to be as fearful or fearful at all. Once you start looking at everything different through a lens of fear, you start to clutch to what you think you know, reinforce it, and again, attack what you don't know. But I believe that religion can be approached and utilized as a tool of curiosity. I don't believe that American Christianity, as many different sects as there are, is utilizing curiosity as a tool properly. I believe that we are, in that regard, very draconian and very medieval, and that they prey on the fearful. Fire and brimstone only get you so far, though. And that's why I think a lot of people who are queer that were part of religious communities leave, because they see the truth. It's kind of like Plato's cave. You can't leave the shadows on the wall and then come back and be like, hey, these are just shadows because no one will believe you. They're too afraid to move on. Yeah. It also comes to like something that I feel like in different religious circles is brought about differently. I grew up 
I was baptized Catholic, raised Catholic up to kind of a point. And then my dad was just non-denominational Christian. And that was where I think I internalized a lot of religious messaging similar to Jason mm-hmm. Grabber's sermons, you know, the Church of Fox News, basically. And one of the big things that I heard a lot when I would question what I learned from church was faith is just believing it. If you have faith, you don't need all the answers. And I said that is one thing they push a lot to try to keep people from questioning the things that don't make sense about Christianity, about what they're teaching you. And when you're queer, you can't love yourself and accept yourself without questioning and disagreeing with at least one part of a very common practice in the Christian church. And so I think that's another reason why a lot of queer people leave the church or find their own kind of relationship to have with religion and God, because you can't believe it and be in it 100% like they try to raise you to be. You can't unquestioningly just follow and still love yourself when you're queer. I truly believe that any healthy view of the world involves a dose of skepticism, a dose of not closed-minded skepticism, but curiosity and the drive to learn more about the world by whatever means possible. And I think that that is where a lot of organized religion, not necessarily private religion, but organized religion and the people that come from it have a lot of work to do. Because like you were saying, telling people, oh, be afraid and be faithful is not healthy and it's not good for you. There are a lot of people in pagan practices that come from Christianity, but they often, I've found, have a lot of religious trauma that they haven't worked out yet. And they're like, this is just the opposite of the thing that I was doing. And so I'm going to do this instead. And that's not really a healthy way to join Wicca or Chaos Magic or Druidry or Reiki or whatever you're doing. Because if you're just running away from the thing that hurts you, you're going to still enact the same sort of mindset and problems with religion. And I think atheists do this as well. I think in Seattle, we see a lot of progressive atheists or people who claim that they're atheists or they're spiritual, not religious. Mm-hmm. They do tarot. They do tarot. <laughs> I mean, I used to read palms at parties just for a couple of quick bucks, right? So there is a lot to be said for that sort of new agey thing. And it's baked into my very fiber. I can't really get away from it because of how I was raised, the new ageiness of it all. But I think that... Often when we talk about religion and when we talk about politics, we latch on to this idea that someone is out there trying to hurt us over the idea that we can free ourselves from that hurt just by being better than that and by not not engaging in the same way as as they would. A lot of our political views tend to also be preyed upon by fear on the left. And we're right to be concerned. But I think that if we're not careful, we will be the end of ourselves by being completely fearful. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I do. Speaking of, been a pretty interesting week here. Um, Starbucks, Starbucks Workers Union here in Seattle is something we've talked about a lot. Starbucks Workers United, SBWU, is a union that represents the coffee giant's employees. And they tried to run an ad in the Seattle Pride Pride Guide, which I have work in, and I think Daniel will have work in coming up. But there was some miscommunication about what was going on. So are you familiar with the story at all? A little bit. Just kind of what you told me before we started recordings. 
Seattle Pride, one of their biggest sponsors is Starbucks. Mm -hmm. And Encore Media flagged this SBWU ad for review. And according to their official statement, it didn't make to Seattle Pride in time. But the concern was that because one of Seattle Pride's biggest sponsors is Starbucks, that it was being blocked by corporate money. However, that seems to have been just a conclusion that was jumped to. And when in reality, the uh, siren with the rainbow hair that was used around Seattle Pride and drawn by a queer artist, we're running this ad here at the SGN. We're running this ad and there's been a little bit of backlash, not for us particularly, but we support the unions, right? So this is, I think, one of those instances where it's like there was a miscommunication. Things didn't get turned in on time. And everyone, myself included, with all of those facts was like, that seems suspicious, right? But Noah, who's the interim executive director over at Seattle Pride, was saying the ad itself wasn't declined, but rather when our publisher brought the ad to our attention, we were in the process of reviewing the final print layout in which all pages were accounted for. There was simply no space for a full page ad. So they they didn't reject it. They just were already done. And this is something that happens sometimes in print. There was an unfortunate series of miscommunications between Seattle Pride and their publisher and between their publisher and SEIU, which led to the incorrect assumption that the ad was declined due to its content. Again, a version of that ad will be in SGN's Pride Guide. It's a really great story. Mike Andrew did a really great job getting all sides of the story here. And I really highly recommend you all reach out and read it. But it, I feel like there was a lot of talk. It's like, well, should we hold this? What's going on? Why isn't Seattle Pride jumping to their own defense? What's happening? And it was just a series of communications that made it seem like Seattle Pride didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just there's a lot of bad blood between Starbucks and their workers right now. And it means that companies like ours or papers like ours are getting backlash because of associations with other companies. Now, do I think that Seattle Pride necessarily should be taking money from Starbucks? I don't know. What do you think? I would say fuck taking money from any major corporations like Starbucks that benefit off those kind of commercializing queerness and then don't advocate for the people that they say they advocate for. You know, I mean, that goes towards unions, that goes towards where is their corporate money going, that kind of thing. Starbucks is pretty essential in Seattle, and they could do a lot more to help a lot of Seattle's marginalized communities that has helped them. They've stood on the backs of a lot of underfunded, underpaid, underrepresented people in our town, and I think it's time that they give back to them. Well, folks, I think that's the show. Lindsay, do you want to, you have anything to add? Just have a great Pride Month. Stay safe, stay sexy, stay proud, and kiss your dogs for me, all of them. Yeah, folks, if you want to donate to the SGN or follow us, you can go to sgn.org, click that pink donate button. Every little bit helps. You can go to at Seattle Gay News on Instagram. We just got a new comic, which is very exciting. That will be printing alongside Ots Bolise's Chicken Head. It's Exploding Lobster Comics, which if you haven't checked them out, go check them out. Claire is very nice, a very nice person with very sweet, cute, funny comics. And I'm glad we have two comics as a big comics nerd. That's a huge thing for like our weekly 24-page paper or whatever, 20-page paper. You can find me online at Photon Detective on all platforms. Lindsay, do you want to give out your shout out? You've got Lindsay's Book Corner now. We've changed it from SGN Books. Yeah, uh, 
read along with me at Lindsay's Book Corner. You can see adorable pictures of my cat, Oliver, some reading questions, updates on the authors that I interview. And I guess you could follow me on Instagram if you'd like. If you'd like to be my friend, that's just lindsay.anderson with no O, just S-N, because lindsay.anderson with an O was already taken. Don't follow them. Yeah, folks, give us a follow. Look for the other stuff we're going to be doing in the near future. I have a lot of sort of projects that I'm working on. We announced one of them last episode, but I'm very excited for what the future holds. Happy Pride. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the funny pages. Radio SGN is hosted by A.V. Eichenbaum and Lindsay Anderson and produced by A.V. Eichenbaum. Music for this show was provided by TRG Banks and Jesse Spillane or was provided for free by Anchor. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out on SGN.org or wherever you find podcasts. This podcast is part of the Seattle Gay News Podcasting Network.